we wish Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. And understand that uh, fathers have a great responsibility. Mothers have, I think, the greatest responsibility, but fathers are a very close second because it's their responsibility to bring the, the gospel, to bring the good news, to bring uh, the word of God into their children's heart. So thank you, fathers. Today we'll be looking at uh, just a little short book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. Years ago, um, Brother Jack Spender was teaching out of the Minor Prophets, and one of them, I think it was Amos, he said, if you haven't read Amos, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? And Amos comes up to you and says, how did you like my book? So with Obadiah, it's a, it's a challenge to read Obadiah because one day you will see him. But fear not, we'll read a little bit of Obadiah today. Oh, thank you. So let's just open in a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, be my mouthpiece today. I pray, Lord, that these words would be meaningful. I pray that the hearts of the saints would be opened. I pray that they would be edified, and I pray that you would be glorified. And I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so just for a little bit of background with Obadiah, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. There's only 21 verses. Obadiah was a minor prophet, not minor in terms of importance, but minor because it's a very small book. The major prophets are the bigger ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But the minor prophets were very important. Uh, nothing was much known about Obadiah. There are a number of different Obadiahs in, in, the, in the, uh, the Bible. But his name means worshiper or servant of Jehovah. The date is not known when it was written, but many think it was written about 585 B.C. And a year later, if that was the case, if it was written 585 B.C., a year later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came down and destroyed Jerusalem. And this book of Obadiah is really a message of doom and gloom. It's not a real happy, feel-good message. So why bother with it? Well, we don't need any more of that, right, these days, but it's the Word of God. And it's a very powerful message of justice. You see, God's righteousness demands justice. He is always right, and he is always just. And it's about this nation of Edom, Israel's longtime enemy. But God said in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, he said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And Edom was a nation that was very much against the nation of Israel. In fact, the U.S., United States, I believe, has been blessed for many, many years because we were a friend of the Jew. That may be turning around a little bit these days. It's not good. Not good for sure. But the oppressors of God were the Edomites, and they hated the Jews, and they loved to see them suffer. But to try to understand the book of Obadiah, 
First, I'd like to ask you to, once you find Obadiah, put your finger there or your place so you won't lose it. can be a difficult book to find. But uh, turn back to Genesis chapter chapter 25, please, just to for some uh, background, a little bit more background to understand what's going on here. We'll be reading in Genesis chapter 5 and beginning in verse 19. I'm sorry, Genesis 25. Did I say 5? Sorry. Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. So God spoke directly to Rebekah and told her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. So as Esau was coming out, Jacob grabbed the heel, and his name was called Jacob, which means supplanter. Supplanter means to take the place of another. So the boys grew, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that some of some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So Esau also was named Edom, which means red. So he was red, probably red hair and and pretty hairy. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So what's what's going on here? Well, the twin boys were given to Isaac 
and Rebekah. And Jacob was the second one. And the blessings always went to the firstborn. So Esau was a skillful hunter. And he was really sort of like an outdoorsy type, maybe a jock, where Jacob was a quiet man. We might think of him today as being a bit of a nerd. But Jacob made this this red stew, and Esau comes in from the field, and he said, I am famished. Let me have some of that red stew. So Jacob, he said, okay, I'll give you some of this stew, but I'm going to make a bargain with you. You give me your birthright, and I'll give you some of the stew. Well, the birthright was very important because the firstborn had the birthright, and they, the firstborn got the many blessings from the from the father. But Jacob was a schemer and he was a supplanter. And he said, okay, I will give you some of that stew. And Esau said, yes, I'll give up my birthright. So Esau gave up the most important thing, the birthright of the firstborn, all for one bowl of soup. So I think there's a bit of a scriptural principle here, application of what not to do today. We today are really uh, what I would call the immediate, immediate gratification society. We see something, we like it, we think upon it, and we change that want to a need. We must have it. And not only that, we must have it now. It's as if we have no self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, one part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So, example, uh, impulse buying might be a lack of self-control. So what bowl of stew or sinful desire is Satan enticing us with today? Maybe it's some sort of possessions. Maybe it's sex or food or money or some other material things. You see, lust cannot wait. It must be had now. Do we really need it now? If you walk away and think about it for a while, you may realize that you don't need this now. However, if you take it now, you may end up with buyer's remorse later. So if Satan satisfies us or attempts to satisfy us with personal material things, temporal things, we won't have much time for the spiritual things. One weak moment, and Esau lost it all. He was spiritual, short-sighted. It was a devastating time. And years later, when his, and you can read about this in Genesis 27, uh, his father Esau, uh, I'm sorry, his father Isaac was old and feeble and blind. He wanted to, he was about to die. He wanted to give the blessing to the firstborn. But, the father was deceived by Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, and the firstborn blessing went to the secondborn, who was Jacob. And Esau was furious. He comes home and he says, Father, where's my blessing? Well, I already gave it to the firstborn. He was furious and he vows to kill Jacob, his brother. So there's a family feud that began in the womb, and it gets worse and worse. And it's a bitter root that God, that, that Esau was carrying. 
And that resentment begins really in a, in a terrible way right here. So Jacob fled. For 20 years, he did not see Esau. In Genesis chapter 33, they meet once again. And Jacob humbles himself. And he asks for forgiveness. And Esau forgave him. They both wept together. They embraced each other. And God protected Jacob. But you see, both grew into great nations. Jacob into the nation of Israel and Esau into the Edomites in the hill country. Some of the Arab nations. But they were reconciled. It was a beautiful thing. Reconciliation. However, that family feud continued because even though Esau was reconciled with his brother, he didn't really fully dig out that bitter root. And that continued for a long time. As a matter of fact, it continues today. We know that the Arabs and the Jews are at war with each other all the time. For example, um, 400 years later, the Israelites were freed from bondage in Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. But Edom refused to let Moses and the Israelites pass through their land. In fact, they sent an army to prevent the Israelites from passing through their land because that bitter root had not been dug out completely and resentment was still in there. And we see this today. We see this between nations, bitterness, resentment. We see it in political parties. We see it in biological families, and we see it in church families. God is not happy with bitterness retained, which is resentment. Hebrews 12, chapter, four, uh, chapter 12, and verse 14 says this, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. I've seen this so many times, where bitterness, and it's kind of hidden, but after a while you sort of discern it and recognize it, and it brings people apart. It's so divisive. So the Edomites were very proud people. They were self-sufficient. They had it all. They were situated on a major trade route between Syria, which was up north, and Egypt, which was down in the south. And as the trade caravans passed from one place to the other, the Edomites collected tolls from the caravans. We have some of that. We have, hopefully not, but more coming into the state in some uh, some day. Um, they were very wealthy people. They had wealth from their mining interests with copper and iron mining. They lived in Petra, which was a very high mountainous region. And it was really kind of a valley that they had to go through. So the Edomites, any enemies trying to come at them, they could always attack them from the high place. So they always had the advantage. They felt absolutely secure. Because they had a fortified city which was impenetrable. So now we can start reading Obadiah. Obadiah, chapter 1. 
Oh, there is only one chapter. <laughs> Obadiah, verse 1. This is the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God. I like that. These prophets say often, thus saith the Lord. Can you say that? That this is, thus saith the Lord, and say that to someone? I've got to be pretty certain that I am right with the Lord before I would ever say that. But this is what the Lord gave Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and the messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock. And that was the rocky place called Petra. If you ever, if you remember anything about the Iraq war, there was a place that a lot of our soldiers were at, uh, at in. It was called Basra. Basra is very close to where Petra was. There is no Petra any longer. Whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, Would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So this is the divine um, vision that was came directly from God to Obadiah. The prophet saw mentally, spiritually, and heard this report from God. You know, Jeremiah had prophesied almost the identical prophecy. So some commentators say that maybe Jeremiah was speaking to Obadiah or Obadiah to Jeremiah, but certainly it was God that was speaking to both. So he said that an ambassador was sent, and this message given by the Lord was to all the nations around Edom telling them to rise up and unite and humiliate and bring down Edom. You see, God uses other nations sometimes to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he will even use an evil nation like he did with Babylon when he destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. Could that be a warning for the U.S. that other nations could be affecting us in a negative way? Could be. Edom was full of pride, their wealth, their copper mining, iron mining, and they were very secure in their high places. But that pride is still a problem with them, and as it is with many of us today. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goeth before destruction. God hates pride. But they were totally self-sufficient and said, who are you? Who's going to bring us down? No one will bring us down. What arrogance. God would bring them down. And they talked about thieves. And thieves steal only what they want. They come into your house and they will look for gold or silver or, or drugs or money, jewels, electronics. But they usually don't take everything, the food and the furniture and all that. So they usually leave something behind. And even the harvesters, when they, when they harvest their field, they leave the corners so that the poor people could glean something. There's always something that they would leave behind. But God is saying, oh no, not like the thieves, not like the harvesters, I am going to completely destroy Edom. Edom's own allies even would be uh, turning against against her. So why this destruction on Edom? It was all because of this long-standing feud, this long-standing family feud, with God's chosen people, the Israelites. Now, two great nations, and we see that today, Islam and Israel, two great nations, and they're warring against each other these days. Esau and the descendants, they never forgot the stolen blessing that Jacob took. They harbored that bitter root. They kept that resentment in. And so now we'll see some charges against Edom in chapter uh, verse 10. For violence against your brother, Jacob, Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. So one of the attackers, the Edomites, were part of that. These were their relatives that were being attacked. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. They looted Jerusalem. In the day of their calamity, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. You can read about that if you want in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Edom rejoiced over that. Now, these were their own relatives, when you go back to Isaac and Rebekah. They were rejoicing at the calamity of their relatives. It was pretty bad. King Zedekiah, as a matter of fact, he tried to flee. He was captured, and his sons were killed before his eyes. And then his eyes were put out, 
and he was bound and he was taken to Babylon. All the people, not all the people, all the healthy and the wise people were deported to Babylon. The poor and the crippled were left in Jerusalem. The temple was stripped of all the brass, the gold, all the furnishings. All that was taken off to Jerusalem and put in a pagan temple. The city was left in a smoldering ruins. It was a terrible sight. And the Edomites stood by and they watched all this happen. And they laughed. And in fact, they were encouraging the attackers. Why? Because Edom still had that bitterness, that bitter root with inside of them toward Judah. They had no right because revenge is the Lord's. Edom participated in the destruction of Jerusalem by doing nothing to stop it. God said they should not have rejoiced. And they took advantage. They looted the city. When the attackers were finished, they went and looted the city. They came down from their high places, their rocks like vultures. In fact, they blocked the escape of those Jews who were trying to escape. And they took some of those that they captured and they turned them over to the Babylonians. They were family, which made it more deplorable. So... There's an application maybe here. Do we have a smug attitude sometimes if a believer fails or falls and think, well, it's about time he got his or she got hers. We've known all along that this was going to happen. It's about time. That's not how it should be because that's the attitude the Edomites had. God hates that attitude. Harboring resentment against a brother or sister is very offensive toward God. You holding the grudge? Purge it. Cleanse it out. Ask God forgiveness, and he will. So finally, let's read about the day of the Lord. Edom, wow. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord... Upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. And the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim. And the fields of Samaria, Benjamin, shall possess Gilead. And the captives captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem, who are in Shepherd, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom 
shall be the Lord's. So God's judgment is perfect. God always judges. He is a righteous judge. He would not be a righteous judge if he didn't pronounce perfect judgment. Any nation that opposes God and his people, he will bring down his revenge. Now, sometimes we may not see that immediately. But I believe that God is in this, what we're in today, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's the political upheaval, the division, God is doing, God is not just wringing his hands and saying, oh, what am I going to do? Look what's happening down there. No. Our, our hope is secure. He is our savior. He is in this and he is going to bring this to a conclusion that will be perfect judgment. God had to judge the Edomites. He's a God of justice. Edom was taken over by the Nabataeans from northern Arabia in the late 5th century B.C. They expelled the Edomites. Some of them fled to Idumea, which is in southern Judea, and they virtually disappeared from history. Now, some of them went back and were assimilated into Israel. So there's little pockets of, of their relatives, but there's no evidence at all of Edom any longer. It was a turning point. God promised cleansing and restoration to the house of Jacob. And someday the Israelites will possess completely what God had given them, the land of Canaan, without being overrun by Gentiles and pagans. So there's I think a deeper spiritual meaning here than the resentment of Jacob and Esau and Judah and Edom. As a believer, we have two opposing forces right within us. We have the old nature, which we were born with, and we have a new nature if we have been born again. And we have this war going on, this like a tug of war inside of us all the time. I say inside of us, it's more like it's here and here in our heart, the old nature says, oh, look what's going on over there. The new nature says, no, no, don't do that. Or the new nature may say, go and help that person there. And the old nature says, oh, no, 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 you've got things to do over here. So there's this war going on inside of us. But not only that, there's, there's two, in conclusion, there's two um, applications, maybe two lessons that we can think on. One is about pride. Pride versus submission. Man's way versus God's way. Well, the characteristics of pride is some of these, some of pride's characteristics are trusting in self, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. Well, we all come at right from our own perspective. What I think is right may be different than what someone else may think is right, but it doesn't make either one wrong. It may be just different. But it doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. But we come at right based on how we grew up, uh, our parental upbringing, uh, the people we used to hang around with in school, our co-workers, our church family, 
our relatives, our friends. So we develop this sense of what's right and what's not right. This is what's right. This right here, God's word is perfect. It's always right. We have to follow this. If we're not reading this, we're starving. We're starving our spiritual man. So pride versus pride versus submission, it's trust and self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. We are self-appointed critics. So easy to criticize. Superiority feelings over others. Arrogance. I've seen, I've seen people talk to others in such an arrogant way more recently than others, than, than years past. Of course, I remember the good old days. They weren't so good either, you know? But, but it seems like there was more respect back then. That's, that's a bit of pride, I think. Arrogance. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 30, John says about Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. We need to submit to him and put aside the pride. Kill it. Mortify the flesh, it says. The second application is about resentment, revenge, or holding the grudge. You may, I may have told you this story one time, I'm not sure, but Years ago, when we first started going to Cheshire Bible Chapel, it was um, they didn't have a building, and we were meeting at the Cheshire Grange, and I was a brand-new believer. And so the, they had folding chairs, and we were sitting waiting for the speaker to come on, and I, and I crossed my one leg over the other, and the tip of my toe hit the, the behind of the lady in front of me. And she, she had a, a dress on, and she... Wipes, brushes her off, and she turns around, and she gave me the nastiest look you could ever imagine. And I'm thinking, if this is how they are, I'm not coming back to this church anymore. Uh, and then Herb McCauley got up and spoke, and it turned my life around. You know, <laughs> So I, I forgot about that, forgave this lady. Ten years later, I'm speaking at Cheshire Bible Chapel in the, the building they have now. And this lady was still there, and I'm finished speaking, and I walked out, walked down, and everybody's, you know, having a little fellowship, and I'm walking out the door, and she stops me. She said, John, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, sure. She said, "Um, you probably don't remember, but about 10 years ago at the old building, I said, whoa, whoa, don't, don't even go there. No, no. She said, no, no, you've got to let me tell you. I said, okay. She said, I am so sorry. And I want to ask you forgiveness. She held on to that for 10 years. Why? I was done with it. I forgave her. Don't hold a grudge. If you're holding resentment against somebody, you've got to dig that root out, that bitter root. It will fester until it gets infected. It will eat you from the inside out. Revenge is God's, not ours. Not forgiving, not asking forgiveness. Romans twelve seventeen says, never pay back evil for evil. Song of Solomon 2, 15 says this, the little foxes were eating the tender grapes. Well, what's that all about? 
Well, at any given moment, any given point in the day, I can be a little fox where I'm talking to somebody and I can say something pretty sarcastic to them and, and they may be a tender grape, they have thin skin and they become offended. Or someone may come to me and say something sarcastic or cutting to me and I'll be offended. So what Solomon was trying to convey is that you can be either one, a little fox or a tender grape. If you're a little fox, stop it. If you're a tender grape, get a little thicker skin. And I got I, I to gotta give you this verse. Dan Simolin gave us this verse uh, at a meeting. Uh, we had a small group meeting a couple weeks ago. It's a great verse. Psalm 119, 165. It says this, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall stumble them. Nothing shall offend them. And Dan was saying, nothing offends me. And he gave a story. Now, I think maybe sometimes if you're a little weak, something may offend you. But we need to develop thicker skins and not be offended. And if we are the little fox, recognize it and stop it. And Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord says, Moreover, if your brother, that means sister too, if your fellow believer, well, let's put it that way, sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, wait a minute. It says, if he sins against you, doesn't mean if you disagree because you feel you're right and he feels he's right. Is it sin? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But do it in private. Don't do it in public. That's very embarrassing that's not, even in business, we were always told if you're going to reprimand an employee, do it in private. Don't do it in public. I've been part of both. It doesn't, it's terrible. What does the Lord want us to do? He wants us to become more Christ-like. More Christ-like. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for your word that you have preserved for us for thousands of years, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for this lesson about the Edomites and how you were a righteous judge. We continue to pray, Lord, for our, this assembly here, for the saints here, for the assemblies all throughout our, our nation. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified even in these difficult days. So thank you, Lord. We look to honor you and praise you as we go forth this day. In Jesus' name, amen.